Il y en a pas sur cent Et pourtant ils existent La plupart espagnols Allez savoir Hello, 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 hello Welcome to another episode of Undisciplined This is your host, Nico Beitendach And today we're speaking to Professor Ruth Kinner Professor of Political Theory at the University of Lovebury And we're talking about her book that came out last year The Government of No One The Theory and Practice of Anarchism That came out from Penguin Books on their Pelican imprint It's a great book if you're interested in anarchism at all I would recommend this as the first place to go to We talk about anarchism the, its intellectual history, its practice today. We talk about the environment, the climate crisis, science, technology. It's really a wonderful episode, and I hope you enjoy it. The artwork for this episode, as with all the other episodes, was done by MJ Depria. He's absolutely amazing. Please check out his other work. Anyway, let's get into it. Professor Ruth Kinner. Thank you, Professor Kinner, for speaking to me today. Um, do you mind telling me just a little bit about your autobiography, your academic autobiography, uh, how you got interested in political theory and conceptual history and anarchism in particular? Sure. So I work at Loughborough University, which is in the East Midlands in um, in the UK. So it's it's sort of situated between Nottingham and Leicester. Um, if no, that's, I also know um, how to pronounce it. <laughs> if that's any help, it's about an hour and a half from um, north of London um, on the train. And I've been working there as a political theorist and historian of ideas since 1992, uh, so a long time. And um, I'm part of an anarchism research group there, which is pretty unique. Um, yeah, it's a great privilege, I guess, to be part of a, a community, a small community of scholars, all of whom are interested in anarchism. And I got into anarchism as a, as a student. So um, I did a, um, an undergraduate degree in history and politics at Queen Mary University in London. And um, as someone who thought of themselves as a socialist, I guess, but who didn't, I didn't really identify with what, what struck me as, as rather sort of the muscular politics of, of uh, I suppose it was largely Trotskyism and Marxism at the time. Hmm. And so I was interested in, in anti-racism and I was interested in, um, in feminism. And I, I hadn't ever heard of, I'd never come across anarchism at all before I went to university. And I did a, a second year history course on Spain, on the Spanish Civil War. And that was my first introduction to anarchism. I, I came across this anarchist revolution, which I'd never heard anything about and, um, was absolutely gripped by the, the history of this Spanish movement and what happened to it and the international politics of, of the Spanish um, Civil War and the repression of the revolution. And in my third year, I, because I was interested in political thought, I liked everything to do with ideas. Um, I took a course that was called Political Thought Set Texts, thinking that it would be a very um, 
mainstream, um, you know, sort of repeat pretty much of, of what I'd done in the second year, which was a Machiavelli course. And found to my delight that it was that it was it was actually a, a history of of the it traced the history of the revolution from from the French Revolution to the Russian Revolution, and it did it through an anarchist uh, critical lens. Mm. And it was taught to me by Bill Fishman. It was the last year he he delivered that course, and he was an anarchist. He was an East End Jewish anarchist, and a great enthusiast for um, for the anarchists. He introduced me to to Bakunin and Kropotkin. He was a he was a friend of Fermin Rocker. Fermin Rocker was the, the son of Rudolf Rocker, who'd been mm. the one of the key organizers in uh of the, 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 the Jewish workers in the East End in the late um nineteenth and early twentieth century. And uh it, it just changed my world. I mean I you know I I I came across a whole um set of ideas and literature which would have been hidden to me, I suppose. And and that's when I started reading. Mm. Yeah, thank you very much. So I almost want to apologize for how simple this question is going to be. I don't want to assume anything from the point of view from a listener. So for someone who's not well versed in political theory, what is anarchism, basically? So the the way I try and approach it in in the book is to say that it's a it's a political tradition. So I and I do that because I don't really want to to be very very prescriptive about um, defining a set of beliefs. So my view is that that anarchism comes from a socialist tradition. So anarchists are broadly people who are anti-capitalists, who, who believe that a, a well-functioning society requires equality so that you overcome um, artificial divisions and jealousies and rivalries. And anarchists believe that in order to make that happen, then you also have to enable people themselves to make decisions about how they're going to achieve that equality. So the, the, the fundamental difference between um, an anarchist and a non-anarchist socialist is the idea of self-government. And it's, and it's this, this idea that, that constitutes, I think, the, the, the tradition that we, we think of as anarchism. And it's a tradition that, that has its origins at a particular time in the late 19th century in Europe, but which can be expressed in many different ways. Um, and because there is this if you like, this commitment to enabling um, equality through self-government, uh, you can also trace a kind of a prehistory, if you like, uh, of anarchism, um, which, you know, um, may not identify people as anarchists as such, but where you can see that there is a kind of a current of ideas which feeds into into this idea of, of, of self-government and, and egalitarianism. Yeah, thank you. So I think that your answer already is pointing in many of the directions that I want to ask about. But maybe to begin with, you made a distinction now between anarchism and other kinds of socialism. Famously, and this is also that something that you talk about in your book, there was a historical definite moment of split between the Marxist communists and anarchist theorists or proponents of anarchism. Mm -hmm. Do you mind explaining 
why that split occurred. So what distinguishes anarchism from, let's say, Marxist socialism? So, yeah, the split occurs in, in the First International, which is uh, was an organization that was set up in 1864, and it brought together um, a whole range of different kinds of revolutionaries and, and trade unionists and and people who thought of themselves as socialists. So um, so I suppose people who were coming out of the 1830s and 40s uh, committed to um, some view of common ownership. And the the argument that, that precipitated the split um, is con- was conducted between, I mean, this happened in, it was rumbling on, I suppose, from about 1868, and it, and it finally led to a, um, a split within the international between those who called themselves anti-authoritarians, who, who later became the anarchist movement, and the Marxists, who later called themselves social democrats, which is a bit confusing. But um, the the split itself was was rehearsed between two key figures, Marx on the one hand, or I suppose Marx and Engels, and a Russian anarchist called Michael Bakunin on the other. And Bakunin was a follower. I mean, Bakunin wasn't by any means the sort of the, the originator of the of the ideas that he he put to Marx, if you like. He'd, take, he'd taken those ideas from a, a French writer of the 1840s and 50s uh, called Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, who's celebrated today as the man who coins the, the phrase property is theft. And the argument turned on the way in which socialists should organize. And the suspicion of the, the anti-authoritarians was that uh, the Marxists, if you like, or those who were um, aligning themselves with Marx, wanted to to organize as political parties insofar as they could. I mean, at this time, it was a, pretty much a fiction um, that you could compete for electoral power in, in most European states. But but this was the idea that they wanted to, to compete for political power, not in order to, to run uh, the existing machinery of the state, but in order to repurpose it, if you like, so that they could use the, uh, the systems of power, if you like, the state um, offered, and then turn those systems of power against the exploiting class and in favour of the um, of the of the working class. And the anarchist position was that you can't use the instruments of the state in order to bring about equality because the state is part of the problem. Uh, the fact that you have a centralised decision making body is something that is, is, sits uncomfortably or is counter to the idea of self-government. So the, the anarchist idea was that if you want to, uh, to, to achieve this, this kind of socialist equality, if you want to um, get rid of capitalist exploitation, then you have to do it by changing the ways in which you, you organise politically. And that means you don't compete for political power. And it means that you don't have a, um, a standard programme of action, if you like, that, that all parties subscribe to. You have to, to work within the context that you find yourself in, those contexts may be very variable, um, but it's for the people who are involved in those movements to decide how best to pursue their, their programs of liberation. And that was, that was really what precipitated the, the split. And, and as the, the, the split, I suppose, took root in the grassroots movements, it led to a, a greater reflection on what it was that theoretically underpinned this uh, policy division, if you like. Um, so as time went on across the, I suppose, the latter part of the 19th and early 20th centuries, you get a greater theorization of anarchism on the one hand and Marxism on the other. Thank you. So I'm thinking 
you say the split at the at the internationals and talking about the 1800 1860s so i'm wondering the fact that anarchism as a theory rises up in the 1800s mid 1800s as a particularly anti-state political approach do you think that it's strongly connected in that time with the real kind of coming up and consolidation of the modern nation state in uh, in Europe, but also the United States and so on. But is it purely a coincidence that anarchism takes this particular solid form during this period when the nation state is taking its this particular solid form at the same time? Yeah, that is a really good question. And, and no, I don't think it's a coincidence. I think I think it, these things are directly related. And 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 if you like, what I was what I was pointing to in thinking in talking about this sort of greater theorization that 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 happens after the split in the international, um, it's precisely over what it is we mean by the state. And for the anarchists, what we mean by the state is a is a sort of a conglomeration or a, um, a set of forces, if you like which are increasingly leading to the concentration and centralization of power um, within territorially bound units and which are becoming um, increasingly obvious in, in people's everyday life. So if you think about the ways in which states develop in Europe, I mean, they, you know, or states generally develop, uh, they tend to develop first through, through the exercise of military power um, and then you get some of the welfare benefits. And, and what the anarchists were looking at was the consolidation of, of these territorial units, which had been achieved through um, ex, you know, excessive force. Uh, they thought that this had been, this was a, an articulation of a particular idea of governance or, or government, which they called the Roman idea, uh, which prioritised hierarchy and authority and the idea that you should have a, a fixed and central point of authority against which all right and wrong must be judged. Uh, it meant the introduction of, of codified legal norms, uh, which were always going to benefit those who, who had most economically to, to lose, if you like. So there was a ruling class within this. And they associated it with the, um, the absorption of powers that existed at a local level. So the absorption of powers of education, the absorption of powers of um, of all kinds of regulation, the the invention of rights of citizenship, of duties of citizenship, the invention, the, the introduction of uh, of conscription, of military codes, all of this for the anarchist was was part of the state. And from their point of view, the idea that one could somehow get rid of the the economic exploitation that this involved without also uh, relying on tools that were themselves highly problematic uh, was was inconceivable. They said if you tried to do that, then what you would be doing is simply replicating those kinds of hierarchies, that kind of centralised, top-down power, uh, decision-making power, uh, in order to to bring about an equality that that was as uniform and as um, oppressive, if you like. As the kinds of inequalities that, that that the socialists were directing themselves against. Yeah, thank you. So we keep contrasting anarchism with other socialisms so far, which leads me to ask that in the last, I don't know, five or six or seven years, socialism or democratic socialism has 
had some resurgence in the UK, in the United States with Bernie Sanders and so on. What does this mean for anarchists? Is this good news or bad news? So, well, I think opinion is, is, is a bit divided, actually. I mean, in, in the, the fact that we now, again, talk about anti-capitalism, we talk about socialism, we talk about these kinds of, of big ideas, I think is a good thing. The, I suppose that the thing to be, to be wary of from an anarchist point of view is to imagine that the kinds of aspirations that anti-capitalism and socialism express can easily be achieved through the machinery which has for forever been designed to to frustrate them. You know, why should we believe that it's any more likely now that the that, that an electoral um, or a party elected to power by democratic means is going to be able to uh, confront economic systems which are globally networked? Um, and do something about them in ways that not only, I mean, you know, I mean, if, even if you could think about uh, alleviating some of the, uh, the inequalities within the boundaries of the nation state, I mean, the idea that, that you could address the global inequalities that exist uh, through legislation within one nation state seems to me to be unlikely, to say the very least. So I think it's great that we talk about socialism. I think in the same way as we talk about inequality, that the, the problem I have is is relying on the same old mechanisms to think that you can achieve those things mm -hmm. through the leadership of a particular group. But does the increasing popularity of, of socialism, does that bring us further or closer to anarchist goals? I think it provides an opportunity to to talk about anarchist goals and, and not just anarchist goals, but to to think about. I mean, for me, I mean, which is kind of where I started from. You know, I don't think anarchism is a is a very prescriptive set of beliefs or a program. I think it's a way in which you do politics, which is about mm. uh, collaborating with others to achieve common goals, which are broadly, you know, egalitarian. Um, and to think about what the you know the, the the broader implications of of that politics for the kinds of inequalities and injustices one sees in one's daily life. So this isn't just about um, achieving you know which is a, a a bold and noble thing to do, say distribution according to needs, but then thinking about what that might mean ecologically uh, in terms of inclusivity in terms of people being able to control um, or make determinations about what they thought were were needs that they wanted to share with their with their fellow beings so it's it's a it's an ongoing practice of politics which is directed against forms of domination that one sees in in one's daily life mm. because lately i've been thinking of the idea that when you listen to theorists on the left, especially uh, the late Mark Fisher's book, Capitalist Realism, you know, the idea that we as a society can't even imagine anything beyond the capitalist system anymore, that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. And then I started thinking about this, perhaps, I mean, there's, there's certainly some truth to the capitalist realism argument. If you're coming from a communist perspective, that's a point worth making. But from an anarchist perspective, if 
we're deep in the capitalist realism, we're drowning in state realism. I think how it's such a challenge to convince people that there's an alternative to the capitalist economic system, but convincing people that the state is the problem feels nearly impossible to me. Yeah, I think there's something, I mean, convincing people that the state, I mean, it's a bit like, um, you know, you can take any institution of the state and and you can see a um, a potentially positive and a, and, uh, and a potentially sort of harmful effect of it. So you could take an institution like the police and say, well, you know, police is great when um, when you've got an emergency or if you want to find, you know, the way to get from A to B. But at the same time, you know, the police is not so good when it comes to uh, to, to to monitoring demonstrations or, you know, checking your ID or whether you've got drugs on you or, or whatever it is. And I think, you know, what anarchism is trying to say is that that, that dual face um, that we have in our institutions reflects uh, basically the sort of the, the, the general uh, tension that exists between government and self-government, that, that, you know, we tend to think that we wouldn't have any of these institutions, we wouldn't have any services, we wouldn't have any kind of um, social order or uh, norms unless someone brought them to us. And what the anarchist is saying is that that's the fiction. You know, actually, if you leave people to their own devices, they tend to work out their rules and their norms and their uh, their social orders. They don't need this brought to them. And the, the advantage of it enabling people to do that or finding the spaces within which you can do that is that the problems of authority, the problems of power and the, and the problems of, of hierarchy that all social organisation um, confronts at some point, they can be dealt with much more flexibly than they can within institutions that try and lay down and prescribe what the right way of doing things is and who the right people to make the decisions are. These are, these are out of people's control. They can't, they can't amend things. They can't revise things, but they can if they make their own rules. So in a sense, I mean, to come back to what you were saying, you know, to imagine the anarchist alternative is just to imagine how you run a club, how you run any kind of uh, social mm -hmm. interaction. You know, some people will be bossy. Some people won't be bossy. And there are ways in which you can mitigate these things. And there are ways in which people do actually do that. Um, and there are all kinds of institutions. And I think, you know, COVID has thrown them up. You know, it's interesting that one of the first things that happened during the pandemic, I mean, certainly in, in, in the UK and, and I'm, I think in the U, well, I know in the US as well, and, and I'm sure elsewhere in the world was that it, it, it triggered the mushrooming of mutual aid groups. You know, so and these weren't anarchists, not all of them, at least probably most of them weren't anarchists. But what they were were self-help groups, um, volunteers who went around, made sure people were safe, made sure people were fed, made sure they had someone to talk to. No one was telling them to do this. No one set down the rules. So this is a kind of an anarchy in action. Um, and 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 I think that's the that's the point at which you can begin to think about, well, you know, how could you. How could you make that a bit more permanent? How can you make that last? How can you network in those ways to to enable those um, kinds of experiments to flourish? Mm. We're talking about current events now. I want to talk about specifically what's been happening in the United States in the last year or two, how suddenly the 
how can I say, the demon of anarchism has reappeared in the media and in the national conversation with protests. And as you say in your book, every time the A word is used, the police come out, you know, some say something to that effect, uh, brutal police action ensues. And this was certainly true in the 1800s and in the previous century. But why is the A word suddenly being used again by the state, by the media, by the police as an extension of the state? Why is this demon being swung around again? I think it's really interesting why the A word reappears. And, you know, my my answer is that it's it's the scariest thing that you can think of, right? So in politics, uh, because it means chaos, because it means disorder. And so it's the best way in which you can demonize a group that seems to be gaining traction on the ground. You call it anarchist. Uh, you and, and by doing so, you you put the members of that group on the defensive. So they have to deny that they're anarchist. Or perhaps admit that they are, but then have to explain what they mean by or that. Or have to explain it. But but it's very, very difficult for particularly if, you know, for for most I mean for for people who who join grassroots um, activist events or protests, you know, they probably don't think of themselves as anarchist. And probably what they do think of is that this is a way, you know, if you call me an anarchist, this is a way of of discrediting my politics, therefore I will deny it. So you just you just sow confusion within a movement. Uh, you you paint it in a uh, entirely negative way because of the popular connotations of anarchy with with disorder and breakdown, and you um, you allow the the worst elements of the media, if you like, to you know reinforce those kinds of images that. Uh, this is a group of people who simply are hell-bent on destruction. They have nothing positive to tell us, and therefore we need to just regulate them out of existence. Mm. And and I think it's interesting that uh, the application of the term is made almost independently um, of the the values of the of the groups themselves. So you can as easily, I'm not sure if it was actually done, but you can as easily imagine the the assault on Congress being called anarchist or anarchic as a Black Lives Matter mm. uh, campaign or movement. So it, 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 it blurs the boundaries between important values and ideological beliefs, if you like, in order just to say we can either have sensible politics, which means routine ritual elections, or we have this, this kind of mob violence. Mm. Um, and we don't want that, do we? So we can just criminalise it. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about or ask you a little bit about the state that anarchism is in currently or today. And I'm also especially interested in the academic attention it's receiving, because I I have a feeling that it is on the rise being spoken of in academia after what I think for a long time it was, I wouldn't say taboo, but perhaps not a correct uh, opinion to have or a credible or serious position. Do you think that there is a resurgence in, in academic circles in the conversations about anarchism? Or am I just, am I only starting to pay attention now? Is that what it is? No, I think there is. I, I think the last 20 years or so, I mean, since I suppose the thing that, that really opened up a space for anarchism within academia was the global justice movements of, of, of you know, 99 onwards. And because they were 
it seemed to you know the observers at the time i guess that these were this was a kind of almost like a revival of of the spirit of 68 uh that these were not uh, classically uh, organized political movements. They were they were grassroots movements. They were mass mobilizations. Uh, they were leaderless. They were flat, horizontal, non-hierarchical, which didn't say anything about the the politics of those people who were involved, but it said something about the ways in which they were organizing that that led people to think again about anarchism as a as a viable way of of thinking about change, I guess, and you know, I suppose it it enabled a number of people to to start studying and and looking at anarchism and discussing anarchism in in academic circles in ways that that hadn't been possible for for many years. And I mean, there are you know, there's a substantial group of 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 scholars, and there is still sustained interest, I think, in in anarchism, in in all its manifestations, historical, sociological, uh, you know, applications, geography, art, you know, so all of this work is going on, and there is a there is a a really rich and, and diverse community of of um, of researchers out there. I wouldn't say that it's become uh, accepted, particularly. I think it's you know it's still difficult for people to within any particular field and and in my own field i'm a so i'm i count as a historian of ideas and a, and a political theorist it's still looked on with a degree of uh credulity i guess um you know because if you're if what you do is 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 challenge the foundations of <laughs> of everybody's idea of of what it means to to live in an ordered society then you know that's quite a big thing to ask people to to think about but we get published, uh, you know, we have conferences and and there is at least, I think, a debate. And I think um, certainly compared to, to where I was when I started, I mean, the only time that you came across anarchism really within political theory was to think of it as a as a problem of political obligation. So, you know, anarchism asked the question, why do we obey the law? To which there was an answer, uh, usually. And I think we've, you know, there's been such an expansion of, of research since then that it is now possible to think about anarchism in relation to all kinds of, of fields of law, to liberalism, to republicanism, to, uh, to you know, you name it. There are uh, post-colonialism, critical race studies. There are lots of kind of connections that people are making. And I think that's that's probably the, the most fruitful and exciting development, the, the, the conversations that are now running, not just between groups of scholars who think of themselves within anarchist studies, but but actually the conversations that run out of that. Hmm. I find it quite interesting that, you know, I once heard that you, you, you agree with me that anarchism is becoming less of a taboo within academia, but then it's happening kind of in parallel with this change in the universities where, you know, I heard a very old talk from Noam Chomsky once where he puts the university as a kind of example of a, let's say quasi anarchist structure and then anarchism was not open for discussion but now that it's opening for discussion universities are becoming overly regulated and overly hierarchized and so that's that <laughs> I, I wonder which is which is preferable these conversations that anarchy has with other 
strands of thought, and especially what I broadly want to call identity politics. It seems to me as the standard approach to to doing critique, or the, the most popular approach to doing critique. How does anarchy interact with, let's say, critical feminism or critical race theory? What What kind of relationship can anarchist theory have with those critical approaches um so i think one of the one of the great one of the great overlaps is in thinking about what it is what domination means and how that plays out um because anarchism although it has i mean that you can find within anarchism a kind of a class theory um anarchists are not uh, signed up to, or have, I, in my view anyway, have never been signed up to the idea that class is 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 the most important or the only cleavage that that we need to attend to. So anarchists have long um, thought of the problem of the state as entwined with the problem of capitalism. So there is a sort of like there is a there is a there is a, a, a social and economic structure within the state which privileges. Uh, those who who own the means of production, and uh, so there are, you know, there is class exploitation, and, and and the anarchist would certainly subscribe to to that view. But because the anarchist has a uh, thinks of the state in a particular way, the the anarchist is always also on trying to to unpick the ways in which people's behaviour and um, people's uh, scope for action is is limited by by domination. So. Uh, the ways in, I mean, you know, early feminists in, or, um, yeah, fe- I suppose pro-feminists within anarchism, uh, were thinking about the ways in which domination operated within the family, for example. Anarchists for a long time, I mean, right from early on, were thinking about the ways in which domination operated between parents and children. Uh, so these, these, these broader questions of social relationship and the, the, the ways in which relationships of dependence are entrenched and become institutionalized. This is one of the problems that the anarchists wrestled with for, you know, from from the beginning. And I think there that's the point at which you can have a conversation with a critical race theorist, for example. And similarly, I think with with um, did you say um, post-colonial? I didn't, but I include that uh, certainly. So uh, I think anarchists. Uh, I think the conversation. There, um, I mean, that's perhaps a trickier conversation, but I mean, one of the ways that anarchists tend to think about the state is the state is a colonizing force. So the processes that you see that structure relationships between Europe and non-European parts of the world are actually also experienced in different ways in the formation of those, of those territorial units. So you can see uh, the way in which that plays out in the UK, for example, between the English and the Welsh or the English and the Scots, you know, there, there are these kinds of concepts that are uh, within anarchism that, that open the ways for dialogue for those who stand outside it, if you like, and, and where, you know, we can learn from each other. I think that's exciting. But something that I've been wondering in my studies in international law was during mm. the process of decolonization, we can talk about the Bandung conference and and so on. Why did newly decolonized countries decide to follow the nation state model? Was it truly the obvious road to take at that time? Um, why they did it and whether it was the obvious route? I mean, I think it probably was the. Uh, I mean, you know, the boundaries have been drawn. 
uh, in many cases, you know, institutions have been established. Mm. Uh, so it, it, it was quite an obvious route, mm. um, if not without its alternatives. And I think, you know, it's, I mean, the answer to the question of why did it happen? I mean, there, you know, I, I don't think it's because that there was a, I don't think it was a default. I mean, I think there was actually quite a lot of, uh, discussion about, you know, what can you, you know, how else can you organize? I mean, you know, pan-African movements, uh, you know, the, you know, there's, there's a lot of creative thinking about what you can do, but you're working within a global framework that you've inherited. So it's actually very difficult then to, to think about how you, how you change that, how you fundamentally change that conversation. Um, and I guess that's the, you know, that's the importance of some of these global, uh, movements, which seem to be um, if not pointing towards obvious alternatives, are, are clearly pointing towards a dissatisfaction with what we have. You know, so if you think about you know, the movements that come out of, of, of you know, what's called the Arab Spring, um, Occupy, all of these things, you know, there are, com- there are um, at least ideas about different practices of decision-making, transnational organisation. Uh, you know, these things are out there. It's it's just very difficult, but that's why I think you have to keep trying to to push, rather than try and allow um, a conversation to simply you know encourage us to think about well this is the way we live it's always been like this it must always be like this it hasn't always been like this this is you know the modern state is a is a relatively recent development mm. in global history. We, it really hasn't always been like this. Mm. It's clearly complicated to mm. to think about global reorganization. But I mean, it, you know, it seems to me that you know, if anyone's really serious about about thinking, uh, you know, ecologically, then then actually now is the time to to absolutely rethink the the model of the nation state. Because for as long as you're trying to to maintain all of those trade flows and the inequalities that go with them and provide for, you know, uh, the best off on the planet with their, their well-being to the, to the detriment of, of everybody else, you're not going to solve the climate crisis. Thank you for taking the conversation in this direction because it's almost, it's almost an institution on my podcast that I, whoever I'm talking to, whichever discipline that we address the climate crisis so you're suggesting now that if we want to address the climate crisis we have to think in some anarchist terms can can you say why that is important and what is the relationship that anarchism has with ecology or ecological movements what would be an anarchist approach to ecological activism so, I mean, there are different approaches, I suppose, in anarchism towards, certainly towards technology and towards um, ecology. But the, I mean, there is a current within anarchism, a very strong current with anarchism, which takes the concept of domination uh, to to think about um, relationships of life on Earth uh, rather than just relationships between human beings. So, so that's you know, if you like, that's that, that's the kind of entry point into into that conversation and. The, I mean, the reason that I think anarchism has a has a purchase on this is because anarchism stresses the local, and it seems to me uh, that the 
the problem that we have is 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 a problem of of not only how we produce but who we're producing for um which is you know which is for a market in order to in order to maximize or to produce profit and for as long as that continues you're not only going to get these vast disparities of wealth across the planet um but you're only going to think in terms of how you can replicate those systems of production through cleaner means um that's that's not a for me, that's not a solution. The, the solution lies in in rethinking, you know, why why and how you produce, and how you can refocus production as far as you can within smaller communal frameworks, and use those frameworks to to federate in order to to ensure that uh, there is exchange where or there are there are avenues for exchange where you need it, particularly in um, in terms of of information exchange, um, you know, so mm. expertise, knowledge, practice, know-how, all of these things, these these common things that we can share and help each other with, in order to to maximise the well-being of people where they live, um, rather than try and uh, organise a, a system which you know simply doesn't do that. I mean, it can't do that. I mean, mm. I, I can't see any way that the existing um, system of global trade can or is designed to uh, produce well-being for people generally and things on the planet. It just doesn't work. Mm. And we know it. Yeah. So, you know, building building from the bottom up, that's 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 the kind of the, the anarchist shorthand, if you like, and it seems to me to be that, you know, that's the kind of the common sense in thinking about how we, yeah, how we provide for our needs and how we how we help each other to do it. Yeah. I I just graduated my doctorate last year and, and my thesis, one of the main points I make is that one of the greatest threats to the climate is the state form itself. So it's, if we talk about, as you said, domination between peoples, that's one side of it. But even for the planet, the state is a bad idea. Yeah. But thank you for that answer. So I also wonder about something else. If we say that the state has a certain effect or impact and that it cannot be reformed, that it's inherently mm, harmful, then I wonder to what extent can that position be transferred, not directly onto the state, but on the question of technology or related, in a sense, is science. Certainly technology can have benefits and it can be harmful and some people will say it depends all on the user that technology is in itself neutral but do you think that the critique that we share of the state that it doesn't matter who's in control of the state it's the structure itself that's the problem or are there anarchists who have taken this comparison or this criticism on the level of technology too Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a, um, a strong and influential, um, anti-civilization movement, which is basically, I suppose, one of its, um, one of its key claims is that, that it, the technologies that we have, I mean, are, are not just not neutral, but that they're, they are themselves the product of a, uh, of a system which is, you know, almost pathological. So, you know, we can't we can't really abstract 
or extract the technologies that we have and repurpose them, um, they are themselves also harmful. And, that, you know, so there's an argument about not just about enabling people to, I suppose, the well, actually, let's put it, let's put it in a positive way. So the arguments of the anti-civilization currents within anarchism tend to be about what we can learn from societies which have been least affected by westernized technological statist systems. Mm. Um, so it, it has a kind of an anthropological turn to it, if you like. What can we learn from people who um, live in close um, communion, if you like, with the earth? What kinds of practices do they do these people adopt? Um, so often these are these are practices that that you know we need to relearn from from indigenous uh, um, peoples. Uh, this is this is the better way forward rather than a technological solution. And I think that that I suppose there's a tension within anarchism or a dis disagreement with anarchism about how far that means also excluding the usefulness of of science or the practice of science um, as a I mean, understood, I suppose, as a a way of uh, of thinking about uh, curiosity and wonder, rather than a, a sort of a, 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 a kind of a, a positivist discipline, mm. and thinking about you know how far that kind of scientific practice, that kind of way of looking at the world, where you say you know, oh, here's a problem and how do we resolve it? Um, and here's a, here's a bit of kit that will help us do this better. I think there's a sort of a, you know, there's a, um, a difference of opinion about how far one necess necessarily damages the other. I mean, my own view, I suppose, is, is, uh, is towards the, um, the science end of that, that I think that there are ways in which people can, um, just as just as I think that people can make their own rules and make their own, own norms and and live their own according to their own practices, and some of those are going to be, you know, you know, they, they're going to have faults in them, you know, like all social orders do. I think also people can solve their own problems using their own techniques, if you like, um, and some of those things will be faulty, and 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 that's why we share, um, and mm. that's through that sharing we compare and we learn. Mm. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, I think uh, I've taken up so much of your time already. So thank you very much for talking to me and answering my very basic questions. No, they're not basic at all. I've, I've um, thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been a really nice conversation. Yeah, thank you very much. And it feels cruel to ask this question after someone has just published a book but uh what is happening next <laughs> what am i doing now yes what are you working on right now when... so so i'm interested in um i guess there's a, that that might be of interest to you if you've been working within law i'm interested in the ways that anarchists can um constitutionalize so how do you how do you um form and maintain and sustain groups without central points of authority and um and, and what does that involve? I think anarchists actually do it all the time, but they're just not aware of it um perhaps mm. but I think that's a a way of thinking about how you can um bring people who perhaps don't think of themselves as anarchists into anarchism by by actually through you know practical organizing and 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 thinking about how 
how power works and how it can be mitigated within within groups. And that I'm still doing historical work, so I'm I did a series of ten pamphlets with Dog Section Press called Great Anarchists, where I just sort of do these short overviews of of individual anarchists, and I'm doing another ten of those, wow. which I really really like. Yeah, that that's that's keeping me busy. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like a lot of work, and I look forward to uh, to seeing seeing that come out and, and reading that. Thank you very much. Cool. <laughs>